thanks for doing this. It's great to chat with you. I was just sure. listening this afternoon on my drive home. I was planning for this, and I was listening to the tabletop uh, podcast you did with Tom a couple years ago. Um, and I uh, love that, love that show. I had heard it actually. I'd heard your interview, you and Tomas, back when it aired. Okay. Um, but I wanted to go back over it just to kind of refresh my memory. And uh, I also wanted to go to the website and spend some time there to refresh my memory there as well, which is always a bad idea because it's <laughs> a wormhole. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, I don't have that. How, do, how come I don't have that? <laughs> I got to say, you know, I, I don't want to get into my collecting nuances too much because every time I picked up your book, I would put it down and meditate on, should I be collecting this? Should I collect this? And uh, But test pressings are the thing that I find to be the most elusive and the most sexy uh you know not so much modern when when you when you know that some of these guys can be pressing like they can press 250 of them because they know that they're going straight to the fans but that idea of i mean i i remember in uh i think it was in phil's book that they were taking the uh, going around to different mastering engineers with with face value and having different versions of the album cut and I mean, those records, that to me is just being a, a musician, being a studio guy, someone who does pressing, that those test pressings are kind of the Everest for me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, um, collectors love test pressings. They love the original of the original. Yes. Um, and of course, the there are different versions that come out because some of the test pressings were done before the final pressing was finished. And once the engineer hears it, he might change something. Sure. Um, if you get into acetates, those can really be anything at all because yeah. uh, those are are cut with a machine. So you could be, um, you could have a, the demo version could be on there. We found some acetates that have uh, versions that weren't used a- again. So they're wow. they're great. But for, you could be duped though, right? With acetates. Yes, uh, for sure. Yeah. And um, I have before, uh, we all have as collectors, yeah. uh, that's uh, one of the, the downsides. Yeah. And um, I did find a an acetate that was uh, supposed to be from the original 73 version. And mm-hmm. I listened to it and it was from the 2007 remix version. Uh, uh, so it was even sloppily faked. Yeah. So for sure, on acetates and test pressings to some degree, you do take a little bit of risk. Uh, you have to know as much as you can to try to avoid that. But sometimes yeah. we we never know for sure. That's right. Well, and I, I did see people were posting a lot maybe a year ago when there were a bunch of test pressings that came up. And I, I guess it was probably from uh, that the last box set that they did, right? The... That was kind of the presumption. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, they're still interesting, but they definitely lose a little bit of value when you know they were just made by some guy a couple of years ago. Right. Um, there's some test pressings that I've gotten from the engineer himself. That's always wow. uh, a bonus. Um, yeah. I uh, visited John Burns uh, earlier this year um, and got some from him. Mm. But, um, you know, sometimes people will get them from somebody who worked at the record company or radio station. Sure. And, and then you can be sure of the authenticity. And uh, we love them because they're they're artifacts of yeah. the recording process. 
And uh, as you said, you're, you know, musician, so you have uh, um, an interest in that for, mm. for other reasons as well. But we love anything that are um, little, little pieces of uh, um, archaeology for these yeah, items that, that, we, uh, that we love to listen to. So. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And I think that's what's so interesting about them. It, have you found, I'm, I haven't even started my questions yet. I, I'm just right. already, we're, we're starting this six hour chat right now. Mm -hmm. um, but have you found that some of the people holding on to some of these things, like mixed engineers or whatnot, may not be diehard Genesis fans like you or I, or collectors that they're like, oh, I, I think I might have that kicking around that they don't even really know or care too much that they have it? Typically they don't. Typically yeah. they they don't have the interest that we do. These are, okay. um, I'm not sure what you do for work, but it would be like somebody looking at an old drawing you made at your job. You would say, well, why do I, you know, why is this interesting to me mm -hmm. or anybody else? Yeah. yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so these people do not find the interest that we do. And um, they have them sitting somewhere in their loft somewhere. Yeah. But the nice thing is, um, you know, depending on how you look at it is, these people, uh, myself included, were getting up there in years, and anybody who was involved in working with uh, Genesis and solo artists, they're up there in years as well. Mm -hmm. And so many of them have turned to uh, finding something to do with these items that they think right. other people have use for. They yeah. don't want to pass them to their kids. They, their kids aren't interested in them. It isn't an inheritance to give somebody uh, a pile of uh, acetates. Well, you can give them to us. We'll be happy to take them. <laughs> yeah. But in general, they find that, well, maybe there's a better place for this stuff to go. Yeah. And so a lot of them have felt, okay, well, maybe it's time to just see who uh, is interested and see where they can go. You brought this up, so I, I wasn't going to bring it up because it's morbid, it's dark, and I don't want to think about it. But is there... A, an expiration date for this Genesis fandom. I mean, I think it's it's gone on about 30 years longer than I would have thought it would. <laughs> but uh, is there an end to it? Is there, is there a, a generation um, that's that's ending? Or do you think, I mean, and, and I, you know, pop music in itself is so young, so it's hard to know. There's still Elvis Presley fans alive. So what what, you know, do you think that this might come to an end? Or do you think that people will... Start to hear about um, Genesis and and become the new versions of us. Well, there's two sides of the collecting issue. Um, you know, they they boil it down to supply and demand. But from the demand side, um, <clears throat> the new generation of kids aren't looking to uh, hold on to things, to store them, to um, display them, to spend a lot of money on them. Some of them yeah. are. They're happy to have a house and and a and a reasonable place to to live in. They're not looking to fill it with uh, random junk. Right. Um, and so from the from the demand side, I think that the next generation isn't looking for collectibles anyway. Hmm. And certainly, they're not the uh, the fan base for a a classic rock band. What you and I would consider a classic rock band, which is a band from you know seventies and eighties. Yeah, but for them, even a band from the '90s is kind of too old for them, right. and they're not going to. They may be a fan of of the band to some degree, but they're not going to be this fanatic collector 
spending lots of money on these things. So I think from the demand side, that would be a, a big issue. And from the supply side, as I was talking to some of these uh, collectors from my book, they were seeing that as these people are getting older, if they're in their 70s because they were collecting uh, when Genesis mm -hmm. was was starting out, they, um, they, they're not looking to keep this stuff anymore. Yeah. Some of them are dying. Some of them are, you know, in their 70s, 80s, and they're, they're not around anymore. And mm. once their collections start to hit the market, as they already are doing, that hits the supply side of the equation. I see. So if you saw an acetate and you're like, or a test pressing, and you're thinking, oh, my God, this is really great. Um, think if you saw 30 or think if you right. saw 300. At right. some point, you would say, well, look, um, okay, I'm interested, but I'm not going to be spending the kind of money that it would have required in in the 80s or 90s to buy yeah. this thing today yeah. maybe the value has gone down because um collector after collector is their their um you know all of their items are showing up for auction and that kills the um the price well and it's really there's just there's no way to know because all of the collecting people for whether it's for Beatles or Bob Dylan or Elvis or Genesis, they're still for the most part alive. And there's and and magazines like Uncut and Rolling Stones, they're still keeping it alive. But so we don't know. We have no precedent as to right. You know uh, what happens when maybe Sinatra, but I mean, and I guess maybe that is a start of the precedent. We don't see too many Tin Pan Alley stuff era stuff kicking around. So. Maybe that is, but I'm hopeful though that younger generations, they hit an age, maybe in their thirties or forties when they start to feel nostalgic and they start to want to cling. This happened to me, start to want to cling to that, your childhood. Um, not that Genesis would be part of their childhood, but perhaps that's when they start to collect things. <laughs> yeah. And I think it does depend as well on the band. There's of course, uh, someone like the Beatles or Elvis, these are, um, perpetual, uh, big collecting bands. They're always mm. going to have value. Zeppelin, Floyd, these are bands where, I mean, you could sell, uh, I always say you could find a Floyd item that would be worth everything in my entire museum would be worth one Floyd item wow. uh, in, in some cases. Wow. Because they're just that big. I mean, there was a, a huge uh, Queen auction recently, all these Freddie Mercury costumes and lyrics and his original piano. I mean, mm. those are things that are of a, they're in the stratosphere compared to the, yes. the Genesis items that we're, that we're dealing with. So um, those sorts of bands may live forever or for longer. Genesis was sort of a bit of a niche band. And so I don't know if the same thing holds true. Yeah. 10 years from now, sure. 20 years, maybe 30. I don't know. <laughs> well, I would argue that what the bands you're referring to, though, they had that, they had something, some sort of catastrophe, some sort of death that froze them in that time. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have that chance to kind of ruin their legacy, as some people have, <laughs> <laughs> some people have said, you know, I always say that about Kirk Cobain and would Kirk Cobain be with, on Dancing with the Stars this week if uh -huh. he was still alive, you know? Yeah, good point. So it, it's, uh, you kind of wonder, anyway, <laughs> here's my thought. Okay. So let's talk about the Genesis Museum, which is an online museum for some of our fans, but this goes back to 99. Is that right? Well, that's when I started the website. 
Okay. And, um, okay. 98 actually. 98. Okay. Right. And, um, I mean, I, I had been a collector for about 10 years by that point. I, I think I was collecting late eighties. I was trading videotapes. I was getting the information fan club and seeing the names in the back of it. It had sort of had, mm. I mean, this was obviously before the internet, there was addresses. You could have pen pals. I had some pen pals and we would trade videotapes and audio tapes and you had no um, way to see or hear these things other than by doing a trade. There was no YouTube by a long yeah. shot. There yeah. wasn't even a really an internet to speak of. But by the late 90s, there was just starting to become internet in common in people's houses. Uh, they were scrambling for DSL and any kind of high speed. It was, you know, on a, on a modem sometimes. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, in the late 90s, I started to put together the museum idea which was um, let's share all of these items on a catalogable, uh, searchable uh, website. So I put all my items on there and then I contacted my friends, which I'd had a lot of contacts by that point. I would travel to see their collection with a camera and um, take pictures of things. They would uh, email me pictures and I started wow. to just build the website around that. And that was the um, collection side of it. Right. Um, but in addition to that, we also did um, remastering projects. We were um, we had a DVD uh, trading group, a Vine group, where you would send a copy to your friend and he would make two copies and send two copies to uh, it was a, re a reverse pyramid scheme, I guess. <laughs> and um, very quickly, you could reach this group. I mean, we had several thousands of members and you could reach all the wow. groups with the, uh, with the items. So we would produce uh, a DVD or a CD and then it would just get distributed around to everybody so they wow. could share it with, with uh, not much cost. And um, so that was another side of the, uh, you know, the museum that uh, was kind of separate in a way. And um, while that was going on, I was also getting involved in the film work, which uh, for those that don't know, um, Genesis was, performing at a time when mostly the only way to record them video wise was on a, um, a an eight millimeter film camera. Mm. There were some 16 millimeter and there was some uh, um, VHS kind of uh, video. But generally speaking, when you're talking about any time in the 70s or early 80s, you're, it's a eight millimeter. And I would contact people. I would search them out. Um, uh, try to um, have a relationship set up and then um, scan those at the best that we could at the time, which was really DVD quality if sure. that at the time. Yeah. And then um, I would uh, sync audio to them, which was a whole nother part of the process because uh, you may look at some of these films and say, Oh, that looks, that looks great. But uh, try it with no sound and see if you could pick out what, what, what's going on. And it, oh my God, it's quite a, um, it's a puzzle. It's, um, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like a jigsaw puzzle. So you would be going to looking for audience recordings or board recordings from the show that you think, you know, the night of, and then trying to manually sync it. Right. And you start to get very good at lip reading at looking at the lighting um, wow. oh, there's a lot of symbols in this section. I bet it's this. Yeah. And you would try and try and, and I would say, you know, the first one, I, I mean, there was so much wasted time on it to try to get it so that it was coherent. But yeah. as, after the years go on, you start to get kind of good at it, just like anything. 
And so it doesn't take quite as long now, but so um, the bands don't do the clapper like when they start a song, right? Of course, yeah. And the the audience, you know, it depends if the person in the audience is taking something that would be five seconds of video or fifty seconds of video. Yeah. And uh, when it's shorter, of course, it's a much um, it's a much longer process. So. Well, I want to get into some of the technical things, but I just want to go back to our earlier conversation. And, mm-hmm. and from 98 till now, I mean, did you have any concept that you would be still doing this <laughs> 30 years later and not only just still doing it as in puttering on, but actually creating some incredible content and, and in, in my opinion, on the upswing of this, of what you're doing, had, had that crossed your mind at all 30 years ago? Not really. Um, we always try to make the thing that we as fans would love to have seen. Mm. So as a collector, there was really nothing that spoke to us. There were no collectors websites, really. You couldn't yeah. find, um, a, a website with Gen- Genesis posters or Genesis, um, collectibles on it. So I said, okay, well, I'll make one because that's what I want to see. Um, but no, you never know where things are going to go um, a- after all these years. You put a lot of time into something and um, it starts to bear fruit. And you're, you're thinking, wow, I've been doing this for, a, for so long. Um, I mean, sometimes you wonder, did, did I waste all my, uh, all my hours <laughs> in my day? Well, you know, th- it's funny you say you, you wanted to create something that you would want to see. And that's kind of been my, um, MO with, with my YouTube channel. It's basically been, I wanted to go to YouTube some nights and I just want to talk about Phil Collins or talk about Genesis. And I just want somebody to talk to me about them because none of my friends will talk to me about them. And, and so, and my, and my wife's had it. So it, you know, that's kind of, I, I'm like, I'm going to create something and we're going to sit around and talk about the the stupidest, smallest little nuance for 45 minutes. And uh, I think that's great, though. And so, no, you haven't wasted your time, obviously. Uh, there's, you know, 10 million people on YouTube who would disagree that you wasted your time. But, you know, it's it's um, I think this book shows it. And the, I've been hearing from people commenting about who have gotten this book. And uh, it it does something. I mean, of course, there's the community, but I think for all of us, we would be just stuck thinking about this in our mind, which might be good enough, but to be able to do it together is better. Yeah, so I really tried to make something that um, spoke to the collector that was all of the things that we have gone through all through the years and things we spend our time on, the things that we find interesting in these Mm -hmm. items. Um, But if I could backtrack just a little bit... um, uh, with all due respect, I'm not sure any of us are going to buy that this is your first rodeo um, in doing these uh, these video blogs. I, you must have had some uh, experience in radio or media <laughs> or I. What, what, well, what were you? How did you get involved in doing these bef- other than just this idea? Oh, okay. Well, um, first of all, this is really rich coming from the guy with the actual radio voice. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, no, well, I do have a, I have a similar, this is my only channel in this space, but I do 
uh, run a company where I talk to people about record labels. So I'm working in the record label field. I do weekly okay. episodes on camera where I teach people how to start an independent record label and how to, uh, you know, improve and grow and, and interact with fans and stuff. I've been in the music business as an independent artist, as a, owning my own record label. I've just been doing this for a really long time. And the Phil Collins part of it, when I was interviewing, part of my other channel is interviewing, like we're doing now, but interviewing record label owners. That's a, di a huge passion for me ever since. And I mean, a lot of us in this community is when you are a kid, you look at the label or in my case, you open up the no jacket required J card and you read, what's this company? Who's, at, who's Atlantic? Who's Virgin? Wh what is this? You think it's an office where Phil Collins sits all day. And so that started my obsession with um, record labels. And so I talk about record labels all the time. And I do that. And I interview other record label owners once a week. It's become, I've been doing it now for five or six years. And it's kind of something I only do for two days of the week. And it's left me with some extra time. And I love talking to people. And the only thing I love more than talking about the music business and record labels is talking about Phil Collins. And that's something I love to do a lot more. And so I thought, let's see if I can turn the can. And I started with a podcast, the idea of a podcast, but I couldn't get the guests to uh, commit. I mean, it, you know, in order to get 52 guests a year, I sent out four emails and I got, I heard back from one and that one was a maybe. So, you know, um, I had to, I had to pivot to creating some more just, you know, fluffy content and then we could do more serious stuff as it grew. So anyway, yes, I have, mm -hmm. I've done stuff similar to this before, but this is my first foray into Phil land. And, okay. and cause I, I do find it very polished. Um, I find the, oh, thank you. um, the, you know, the, the way that it's structured, all the content is, is very well done. And, it's uh, rare that we see a channel that just started to have it done so well. And I was thinking this isn't his first rodeo. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, busted. Well, I'm not an industry plant. I haven't been paid by uh, Tony Smith to come right. here. I would take, I would take the money though. <laughs> well, you know what? I'll tell you, it's easy to do because I am doing it already when I'm in the shower, when I'm trying to, when I'm laying in bed at night, I'm thinking about my top 10, Genesis album openers. I'm dreaming about what bootlegs I want to find. And I think it was, I, I had, I'm not sure if I had started the channel yet. And I didn't really know that bootlegs existed. I think I was two months out from when I had started the channel and I didn't know that bootlegs were a thing. And yet I had discovered the, the torrent site and I was really loving all of the fresh content, discovering digital bootlegs, but I'm a vinyl guy. I love the turntable and listening to and I went into a record store my daughter was in a hockey tournament I stopped by this store I hadn't been in before and they had uh yellow foam bedside foam they had the emerald city they had the um a big genesis one uh from with that included the duke era stuff um and then I well, there was one other oh and then the uh, white mountain and they had all four of them for 40 bucks each and I did. I had never seen them before. I didn't even know this was a thing. And then that just, you know, to bring it back to the the collector, that fire was ignited in me. And uh, and you know, now 
maybe a year and a half later, I maybe have 20 of them, but there's another 200 out there for me somewhere mm-hmm. in the world. But anyway, that was just a few months before starting the channel. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, it really does, it comes so natural because it's, I'm thinking about this stuff all the time. I'm thinking about it all the time. And uh, I love it so much. I never want it to end. The, the kids are, they want, they want me to move out. Like they, there is nothing that is played in this house that is not Phil or Genesis, the odd Aunt Philip record or Peter Gabriel goes on, but um, they're going to kick me out. Anyway, <laughs> let's get back to the interview. Okay. Um, so let's plot ourselves on a timeline for me because you're, the big the big claim to fame that most people would know is the Bataclan footage. And, you know, Tom, in the in interviewing you with um, Tabletop, Tabletop Genesis, the best podcast out there of any podcast, Tom was talking about how he just made this comment about how you expect a restoration to be good, certainly better than prior. And sometimes you're really impressed and that's all here. But then that footage was way up here. It was just, I watched it again today for the, probably the millionth time. And you just want to touch him. You know, you just want to reach <laughs> in and feel his face. It, it is just surreal. Uh, and as uh, Mike Lord said, the only downside it is, is the, the camera work. You know, I wish that we had one camera on Phil the whole time, but um, anyway, Plot me on the timeline, because I want to talk about the book. I'm I'm obsessed with the book, but mm-hmm. plot me on the timeline from when that film dropped and it kind of went viral, certainly in our community, but also in the mainstream media. When did the book, when was the origin of the book? When did that get conceived and thought, hey, this is going to be our next uh, thing that we do with respect to that? Uh, I think it was, was it spring 2022 for Bataclan or? Um, I think it was 2021. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not, Spring, okay, maybe um, March 21? Yeah, maybe that. Maybe 2021 was when we originally were working with it. Um, okay. My, my timeline okay. might be a little bit messed I'm, up, too. I apologize. But I mean, I, I may to... be wrong. But um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the origin of that was essentially through um, a guy that I work with in France named uh, Thomas Manchon. Sure. Whose yes. uh, name I'll butcher, uh, unfortunately, because my That's French okay. is not so good. How's your French being up there in Canada? Uh, terrible. Okay. It's about as good as yours. Yeah, right. you, would, you would think. You would think. But I know the I know the curse words. That's right. all I know. So um, we've had a lot of success with film and video because there's a lot of people who I work with who I consider part of the museum who are all in different parts of the world. Mm. And in this case, uh, Thomas was... Um, in France, and he had access to um, the uh, originals for this uh, film. Mm-hmm. And um, we decided to see where could this go. And it wasn't an original like, you know, what I have with the uh, the Shepperton, which we'll get into at some point, which is over mm-hmm. and over here. It wasn't <laughs> an original that you could touch with your hands, but it was a um, a copy of a copy of a digital of something. And um, it needed work. Mm. And um, I think you would also be amazed if you saw what it was we had started with, because it's quite a journey with mm. a lot of different versions and a lot of different software and a lot of testing. And we, I'd send it back to him and he would say, oh, it's to this or to that. And um, we went through this process for the better part of a year. 
until we had something that we felt was um, really where we'd like it to be. Um, the other issue that we always deal with is none of us own any of the material in this band because sure. we're just we're just fans. I mean, I don't know the band. I'm not hired by them. And in fact, in many cases, I think they believe that we're somehow making money off of them. So mm -hmm. I don't think they really want to work with us. So um, there's rights issues that we had to deal with. Um, the Bataclan has some rights. The INA in France has some rights to their own video. Mm -hmm. Genesis has some rights to their likeness. And the band, um, the, the record company has rights to the music. Yeah. So we couldn't just take it all and, and put it out there right away. We, we had to deal with some of those sorts of issues. But at some point we felt, okay, well, this is um, at a point where we, we'd like to release this. And um, to your point earlier, no, we had no idea what was going to happen. To us, this was just another thing we had been looking at for, for a year and, and, and a half. And... Um, we put it out there and it just, it just exploded. It ended up on Rolling Stone and um, it got in some ways more attention than we normally like because right. what we didn't want was a, a, a kind of letter that we've gotten in the past from uh, the powers that be. Yeah. So, um, you know, in this case it goes on that we don't make any money from, from YouTube. All of that gets paid to the, the royalties to the record companies. Mm -hmm. Yep. And um, as it turns out, the the um, the Bataclan loved it. They contacted me to do an interview. Um, they put it on their website and um, on their their Facebook page, and it it got a lot of positive attention. So it was really, um, you know, one of those successes that that we love to have. If if all the the uh, things fall into place. Was there any sense, I, I mean, I thought I had heard, I don't know if it was from Nick Collins, but was there any, did you get any feedback that other people in the band or in management had seen it and had appreciated it? I mean, you've got to think, if if you can get footage of yourself from your childhood in HD, who wouldn't want that? It would be an interesting little portal. Um, Steve Hackett, unfortunately, is the only band member that's really interested in the past of Genesis. So okay. I'm sure that the other members had seen it. Uh, we've talked to the Peter Gabriel's archivist and mm -hmm. um, we've talked to Tony Smith and so forth. And, and of course, they know of this material. Yes. But as far as them sitting, watching it and enjoying it, I think that Steve Hackett would maybe be the only one that would really have done that. Interesting. You know, that brings me, I'm scattered all over here with my questions, it's but fine. we're flowing naturally. But that brings me to something that um, I took from your book that was really, really interesting. And it was the many times where you quoted and you referenced almost as like kind of a, almost as a, a defense of collectors, but you quoted and referenced Phil's um, Alamo book quite a lot. And it really introduced this strange dichotomy in my mind of Phil being so shocked and dismissive to his fans and to collectors is why would you want my running shoes? Why would you want a ticket stub? Yet at the same time, he wakes up early in the morning, click, 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 and tries to find something from the Alamo in the same way that you and I do for Genesis. Um, I just thought that it, it's so hypocritical, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, uh, but I found that, that dichotomy to be so interesting and it's referenced a couple times throughout the book. I thought that was, a, that was really well done. 
Yeah, that was a thread I tried to pull through the book. I thought it was very interesting. Um, I don't know that he would. Um, I think he d- does have a have a sympathy for us and our collecting. Sure. Um, I, sure. He's he's one of the most generous band members as far as signing things, giving things for charity. Right. Um, you'll see many things signed by him that says thank you for your support. So this has been a charity item. Right. And um, so I know he knows that these things are important to fans, um, but you don't really get it unless it's your band, unless it's That's your right. item. That's right. I can show you a test pressing from a band, you know, in sync or something. And you would say, well, why? Yeah. Um, and maybe yeah. we'd look at his musket balls and his uh, um, sure. leather pouch from, from Davy Crockett and say, you know, that's has no interest for us. hundred percent. It's um, it is very funny. And that's why I put it in the book of how we're so attached to his items that he really has no interest in himself. You know, these sticks I have up on the wall um, that he used, he probably discarded without another thought. Yeah. And yet he's sitting there every day. Um, I mean, he's filled an entire museum in the Alamo, donated all the items, and yet he's still every day looking for more. So that doesn't uh, tell you somebody who uh, who has the the sickness like we do. <laughs> yes, I did find it quite encouraging. I did find it quite encouraging, and I and I because you do kind of feel like why am I obsessing over the items of these people that and they have no interest in them, let alone you know they're dismissive of some of the music, let alone the acetates or yeah, the yeah. drumsticks they used. Yeah, I know. I found that so interesting. The other thing I pulled from the book so much was the concept of parameters and just this idea of, um, of course, what you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. At the same time, one man's treasure is another man's trash. Like you were saying with the the NSYNC thing. I mean, uh, that story you mentioned is so funny because I was at a fair the other day and, and the guy asked me, what are you looking for? I said, Genesis bootlegs. He says, ah, sorry, I don't have any. And then he grabs um, uh, maybe a Zeppelin bootleg and he says, I have this. And I'm like, you know what I mean? (laughs) It's like, no thing. It's like whenever you ask for a size 10 shoe and they pull out a size five, it's like, great, but that's completely irrelevant to me. Right. Uh, You know, so, but these ideas of parameters, I found to be so enlightening in your book. And I don't know if it was a thread that you tried to bring through or if it was just something personally that I pulled. And, and I think you addressed it at the very beginning. Uh, and a lot of people in the Facebook comments too would say, it's about the music for me. I don't want garbage. I I'm a minimalist. I don't want things. Uh, it's about the music. I would have thought the same thing for myself because I primarily collect vinyl and cassettes. And uh, But I think there's something more to it than that. Because if it were about the music, well, we all have that. We can stream that right now. We can fit it all on our phones. Um, and so I, I found that the idea of individual, um, parameters, whatever those may be, I found that to be so interesting and so enlightening for me as a collector. Uh, can you explain that a little bit? Is that something that came to light for you putting this yeah, together? So I did put a, a lot of that in the book. Um, there is a section in there uh, that we call the collecting rules. Uh, some, right. some collectors yes. and I, uh, call them rules. So, uh, we may have something even written down that says, unless it meets this size requirement, it is not a poster and it is not something that I collect. 
Now, the reason this sometimes comes up is there may be something that somebody doesn't have or doesn't mm. want to spend money on or doesn't want to pine over. Mm. Um, if they can say, well, it doesn't fit my parameters, it doesn't have to be something that they are looking for anymore. They can put it out of their mind. If it had met their parameters, now it's something that goes on the want list. And that's something that we don't want to keep adding to. Oh, good thought. So it's it's psychological. It's a psychological. So, for example, if somebody is a collector of official um, vinyl and I show them a I've got this great uh, um, trespass. There's some photos in, in the, uh, the book from Taiwan with a red mm. cover. And I said, look, this is from, you know, and they said, no. This doesn't qualify. The record label isn't this and this doesn't, you know, so this is yeah. not something that goes on there. I do not have a need to buy list. <laughs> that's a great point. That is a great point. I think that's that sounds a lot like me. That sounds a lot like me. I, I really I see things in the wild and I think, no, that's not for me. I, I don't want to go down that route. Um, that's very funny. What, am I wrong to think? Was there somebody who admitted, one of the collectors you interviewed, that he admitted to at one point collecting everything that said the word Genesis on it? Like not just yeah, Genesis stuff. Yeah, that was Paul but... Davis. Um, and he was joking, although he said it was really happening at some point. Okay. He would get um, a, um, a magazine that said Genesis, but it was nothing to do with the band. Or he wow. would get a... Um, I've got a grill. I swear it's just a coincidence, but the grill is a Genesis grill. We've right. got cars in the U.S. that are Genesis cars. But That's he was right. literally getting um, these random things that said yeah. Genesis on it. And he says, one day somebody's going to find me buried in a pile of, of random <laughs> Genesis-related items. Yeah, And, you know, of course, those are periphery items that most collectors wouldn't be interested in. But, you know, it just sort of speaks to the the sickness that we have. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's that. When I heard that, I thought, OK, that person is crazy. It's always nice to have you need to have someone crazier than you because we're all just uh, irrationally pretending that we're rational. Sure. So it's it's nice to have people like that. Are, do you have parameters in the museum? Um, I do. The, um, but generally speaking, I mean, I collect all sorts of different things. But the parameters for myself are um, it has to be something that's unique and um, off the wall. And um, I'm not really sure. It's got to be just weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I had uh, some uh, fans came by uh, during the the Gabriel tour and they came to to look through the museum and they said, you really don't have that much vinyl. I mean, mm. I looked at my vinyl. I mean, I, I've got maybe two shelves worth over there mm. and they're the weirdest rarest most interesting vinyl there is but a stock copy of something good luck it's probably not there <laughs> um it just didn't you know yeah. uh appeal to me or sure. maybe i didn't encounter it where i was going so yeah i've got the weirdest you know i've got like this puppet from argentina over there i've got these scarfs that were sold by um, bootleggers outside of shows. Oh, Those were wow. interesting. Yes. Um, you know, I've got these little, like, 
these little figures here. There's a Phil one and there's a Gabriel one. Um, yeah. the, I love the Buddha flag. That's another one of my favorite right. um, things up there. Um, these two records, I realize I'm pointing at nonsense here, but um, they're from um, their Air Force um, records that were done for the armed forces. Are, are they in the book? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. So, I um, saw that. Yeah. They're interesting to me because they were pressed for uh, people in the armed forces and they could hear things that were going on at home. So these, mm. um, these armed forces radio companies would put one side of Genesis and they'd pick some random songs. And if you look at the selling England one, there's just random things. I mean, it's got like, you know, there's no hits on there at all. Weird. And then on the other side could be a totally other artist. Wow. And they were brought to the field and they were played, who knows, once or twice so that yeah. people could hear. And then who knows what happened to them. And so I found a couple of them. I know there are others in the wild, but to me, those are interesting. Whereas a stock copy, you know, maybe is, is just not my thing. Sure. Well, it has a story attached to it as well. It has such a, it, it, they potentially have traveled. Yeah, sure. What about new items? I, I, I don't know if I use this example uh, in a recent video, but if I were to think of my Genesis collection, this right here is probably one of my favorite items in my Genesis collection, which is totally meta and ironic, but it's because I started a YouTube channel about Phil Collins, which is a crazy idea, and a year later I'd met a thousand people and somebody sends me a book that I can talk about and read and celebrate with the community. So this means more to me than my stock copy of any of my records that you can get anywhere. Mm -hmm. So t tell me about that, about how there are in a way new things being made, whether they're official or unofficial. Is that something on your radar? For sure. I mean, if you can get a book, um, I've got many books in the in the museum that were uh, sent to me by the author, signed by the author. Mm. Uh, I love those. I, I love books. I, I don't have yeah. quite as many as Paul does. He has uh, probably the closest to what we consider a complete collection. He buys wow. all the language translations and all the wow. cover variations. Yeah. But uh, but you know I've got a lot from the from the author, and I, I love to get those. Um, and certainly if there are new releases, for example, those, uh, box sets, those relatively yes. new, um, yeah. I have those in there for sure. The new mixes, um, Peter Gabriel's album. I'm, I'm of course going to, going to get when that's released. Sure. So I would, I don't shy away from getting new things at all. Um, but I also look a lot for getting something that's new to me, but that is something that's maybe 50 years old at this point. There was um, some talk in one of the chapters, one of the collectors was talking about their digital collection. And now I'm old enough to know, to talk about going back to the modems and downloading stuff back in those days and, and filling up your, your 250 megabyte hard drive. And I, 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 back then I do remember having a little bit of a collection of MP3s, pre-streaming days, and it was the smorgasbord of Napster. I do remember referring to my digital music as a collection. But as soon as Netflix came along, and as soon as, of course, the streaming platforms came along, and then the revolution, the second revolution of vinyl, I don't consider any digital products to be a collection. They're in the cloud. I can multiply them millions of times. How? What do you think about digital? Does the, does the museum consider anything digital? 
I mean, now we're kind of talking about NFTs in a weird way, but do you think about digital items at all? Yes, um, they're actually a big part of the, the museum because we used to think as digital as being a solution to everything. Because mm -hmm. if you need to get uh, Top Gun, you can look that up. It's no no problem. But if I asked you, um, you know, I need to look up a costume. Gabriel wore it early in 74. He stopped by, by April. Um, we need to find what's the costume he had. How did he use it? What was the uh, stage looking like at that time? You can't just pull that out of the cloud. Right. So a lot of what the museum has in, in the digital collection is, uh, I mean, there's got to be hundreds of thousands of files from everything from posters. People have sent tickets. Mm. Um, I've got, uh, you know, a little um, negative and slide scanner over here. And I've got um, this uh, air can always at the ready because I'm always <laughs> blowing dust off of things. And um, I scan them in and it it becomes something that is almost more difficult to, to maintain than a regular collection sure. because um, there's so many photos and so many uh, negatives and so many um, items people have sent that I know that I have it somewhere, but I might not be able to go and, and find it. So a magazine may contact me and say, we need this for the magazine. Can you uh, get us a better photo of it? And I'm thinking, oh, my God. You know, where do I find this? Yeah. And you're, you would laugh at my organization, uh, my digital organization, but it is listed by where I got the item. So it's not mm. listed by tour. It's not listed by date. It's listed by Bob gave me this thing. So yeah. I got a Bob folder and I could remember for some reason. That's I remember good. I would know, do Bob that too. sent me that thing. Yeah. And so um, if somebody needs photos from a particular tour, if somebody um, needs uh, a scan of a particular item, a poster or something, I can uh, go through there and say, oh, yeah, this is where it came from. And then I could search through and find it. Mm. But um, the, the digital arena is not the end of the uh, collection because you still have to maintain it. You still have to have a hard drive that's not going to fail you. You still have right. to have backups. And I've got um, endless hard drives and DVD backups from all the years that I've been doing this. And even on the, um, you know, the, the, the project that we have coming up, I recently went through the old version that we had. I went to go search through the old DVD that I got sent 20 years ago and try to compare to see I needed to answer some question. And so unless those digital things are retrievable, they're not any better than, you know, the shelf over there if I can't find what they are. For sure. And so thinking about digital audio files, there was some mention about how some folks have digital audio files that they haven't shared with anyone. Is there any sort of, I won't, I won't say value, but rarity to any digital, I'm specifically asking about music files, uh, for sure, there is. Um, the one issue that I brought up in the book was in the days when you used to be able to trade things through the mail, when it mm -hmm. wasn't, there wasn't this internet, there wasn't this YouTube, you could trade it with your friend and basically your friend would be the only one that would have it or maybe a couple of his friends were. If in a, in a, uh, in a broad sense, 10 people would have it, 20 people would have it. But now if you sent it to your friend, it may end up on YouTube. And now 
millions of people have access instantaneously to this, uh, this item. So that has made some people who have these rare recordings hesitant to uh, share them mm. because once they're shared once and it ends up on the internet, then everything that they have has no uh, rare value. Or maybe it's something that they were given um, because they knew somebody that worked for the band or they knew somebody who worked for the, so the radio station. Them. It exposes them. So, mm. for instance, if um, if you contacted your local uh, radio station and somebody there found a recording you're looking for, a concert they recorded, and they said, hey, you know, you're a friend of mine, here's a copy, but really um, this can't be publicized, I work here, and so forth. Um, you may give it to your friend, you may give it to another person, but um, if it ended up on the Internet, now it's a bigger problem. Yes, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I had never thought of that. I wonder if I should go to my local college radio station, see what they have kicking around. Um, I got to go. Uh, <laughs> um, that's in, No, that's so interesting. Uh, okay, so going back to the book, we're all over the place here, but it's fine. I, I love the book so much, and I, I know we've done a review on it. It's so heavy. We just shipped uh, somebody in our Patreon, won a copy, thanks to you guys, and um, it, the cost to ship it to Scotland was insane. It's going by boat right now just because it's so heavy. But actually, I want to know about this production thought process when it comes to putting these books together. Because in a way, this is the first real-life form of the mu of the museum outside of, of coming to visit you. I think the um, original, the easiest thing to do would be a, to do a PDF. The second easiest thing would be an ebook. The third easiest thing might be a a loose paper, photocopied black and white paper. Certainly the hardest thing to do would be this 10 pound, 12 pound hardcover with a full color pages, glossy pages. And I mean, even there over Zoom, you can see just how crisp the photos are. And I can read, easily read the timestamps on this test pressing in the corner. So can you tell me a little bit about that production thought process um, is that if we're going to do this, we're going to do it th so well like this? I mean, that was a huge undertaking. Yeah, for sure. And um, if there's one thing that the museum has done over the years is we never do the easy way. Um, <laughs> the easy way is um, everybody does it. Um, the easy way is, um, I don't know, maybe it's not so interesting Maybe it's something that people wouldn't uh, value as highly if we mm -hmm. uh, made a PDF. But at the end of the day, we're, we're collectors. We love right. to touch and feel these items. That's right. And um, I wasn't really sure at first how to, uh, to put the book together. So what I did is I, um, you know, I laid the whole thing out and I made it look nice on the screen. And I had um, a test copy made so I could just see, you know, what does this look like? And it was so much nicer. Um, I had some uh, versions out to people, uh, Mario Giametti and uh, Tomas and um, a couple others, and they hated reading it on the screen. They yeah. were just, it took them forever, and the text is um, annoying, and you um, it really wasn't clear. Mm -hmm. And when I got the test copy uh, um, printed, I was like, this is finally something that is uh, really enjoyable to look through. And um, yes, it's expensive. Yes, it, it weighs a ton. Uh, shipping on this project is no joke. 
Um, I not only have uh, all the books stacked up here, I have all of the shipping materials. There's hundreds of dollars worth of duct tape. There is um, a labeler machine. There is a trip every day to UPS who's sick of me walking in there with more <laughs> of these books than I can see over. Wow. And um, it's, a, it's a giant project that I recommend nobody take on. <laughs> It is uh, every time I, I go through it, I think this is a mistake. And why didn't I just make a PDF and people can, you know, pass it around. Yeah, yeah. Um, but really, at the end of the day, we're collectors. We love um, what is the best form of this thing. And we love to touch it. We love to, you know, the numbering of it, the sign numbered copies. And um, I think that it really made it a special thing. It For me, it was a great um a uh, summation, a, a nice summary of what we've done with the museum all these years. Mm. It celebrated all the different people in there. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to offer this book, which is very heavy and expensive to ship, um, let me at least just sell it for cost. So whatever mm. um, it costs to print and ship, that's what it mm. goes for. Mm. Um, I have no interest in filling out a tax form for profits on this thing. It's a um, it, it turns the hobby into uh, a job. Sure. So, um, so yeah, I made it as cheap as I could, even, uh, trying to make it as high quality as possible. And, and people have really appreciated it. They really have. Uh, everybody has, who has gotten a copy, I think is blown away by the quality of it. And I mean, it's the kind of thing where I rushed through the first half because I knew that I had to do the review in, in quick time. Um, but now I'm slowing down and I'm going to go back over it again. And I've already gone back over it. I, I find these types of things to be fun reference guides too. Um, and a little bit of a Christmas list as well, unfortunately, some things. Um, it's got me into, I'm now interested in, and somebody had just sent me some Peter Gabriel bootleg tapes. We're going to do it in another video. But um, it's now got me on the hunt for uh, Phil Collins and Genesis cassettes, bootleg cassettes. There's somebody in here who has a big collection. And now I have something new to collect for the next 30 years. So um, anyhow, the the book is so great. So, so great. And I'm so glad you did decide to go that route. Um, another thing that really surprised me, and I, I mentioned this in our review, and I want to know when this idea popped in your head is when you do uh, something like this, it's pretty common to just think picture, 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 you know, with a little bit of a, a footnote under each picture and, and that's it. May, and then maybe a reference guide, which we have uh, published before, but a list of all the things that exist in the world. But instead you decided to go a little bit more editorial talking about the nuances of collecting and the history of the museum and, and, you know, the, the concept of value and the monetary component of this. What made you think to go that route? And I, I said it in a review, this is a book. Like you're reading a nonfiction book. Uh, and it just so happens to have some nice photos as well. So what, what made you think to go that route? Um, I think we've become a little bit jaded in these years of the internet to where you can go into Google and type in um, Peter Gabriel uh, Genesis uh, um, photograph and you'll mm. get a thousand photographs. You can put in a Genesis poster and you can get a thousand posters. And, uh, you know, on the, the museum, there are, um, I think it's up to maybe 5,000 different items on there. Wow. And um, 
I thought to redo the museum would be um, uh, would would do a disservice to somebody who's actually uh, spending money on the book. Mm. And I also felt in the book, at which you you may have grasped, was I don't want the collecting to be about the items solely. I wanted to show that we have these other components that we are really um, valuing the relationships, the um, relationships to these items, the memories they bring back, the reason that we are uh, attracted to item A, but maybe item B doesn't do that for us. And I think if I had a thousand pages of just here's some more tickets and here's some more backstage passes, I think people would flip through uh, kind of fast. 100%. And I made a, um, a a big effort with the book so that if I was flipping past the page, I had, I had failed that page. I wanted every page to be like, oh, well, this is really interesting. This is a, an idea I didn't think about before. Mm-hmm. And so I, I made it less about the items and more about the, um, all of the meaning behind it, the whys and the, um, these relationships that we have, the relationships we have with the band, whether they they realize it or not, more than just a um, a printout, which you can get uh, anywhere at this point. That's right. And I'm so glad you did. I'm so glad you did. It was, and I think, you know, I think you alluded to this, that here I was expecting a book about Genesis or a book about, and I think you even, you know, mentioned, referred to the idea that we're all expecting to go charter house, you know, and like hear the, the beginning of the story. Um, but it's so funny how it, it really is a mirror. This whole book is a mirror. It's not about Genesis. It's not about the items. It's about you. It's about me. It's about my collection. And, you know, whether that was intentional or, or subconscious, it started to come through where I would put the book down and I would think about, what I have in my collection, what I want next. Why do I love these things so much? Like, why are they so visceral? Um, so that's that really truly is my, uh, and I'm pumping its tires too much, but I, it deserves it. Uh, but that's really what I pulled from the book. Yeah, and I think uh, you sort of summed it up when you said that um, you're going to find people that are crazy in your mind because of how they collect and what their collection looks like. And you're going to find somebody in there that you're like, that's me. That's right. Uh, That person in Stockholm and that person is me because their collection speaks to me and how they started collecting. That's how I started. Yes, absolutely. I also found it very interesting too. Some of the stories, the stories of the collectors were fantastic. And I, I found it interesting where you would think everybody came in in 19, 70, 1971, everybody discovered the band at Trespass, uh, or, you know, and, but it's not true. It's people who discover the band in 2000 or in the late eighties, uh, you know, my first, for someone to say my first record was Abacab or for someone to say my first record was, I think somebody commented on my YouTube channel just last night. They said their first record was we can't dance. And that's why it's so meaningful to them. That personally is what I love about the band. I love that about the band that they didn't die or break up in that golden era, whatever people will call the golden era. And uh, 
so I was surprised about that in the book is so much diversity all around the world and different ages too. Yeah, for sure. Um, how did it come together? Like I said, the pictures are so good. The collections are good. I would be so pissed off if the collections was a zoomed out two inch by three inch photo, <laughs> but they're, they're big photos. Did you go to these collections? Did they just take good photos for you? Cause they're all high res photos. Right. Well, most of the items in there are from the museum and the simple reason was that I'm able to um, make a, a high quality photograph of them. I have, okay. you know, scanning equipment. I have uh, camera equipment that I can do and it, it wouldn't have been right to ask people to um, do too much with that regard. Okay. So most of the items in there are from the museum. Now, when we have the items that are on the page for that particular person I'm interviewing, yes, um, yes they did send me photographs of items. Sometimes I needed to get extras. And yeah. of course they sent me, uh, you know, 50 photos and I picked the ones that I thought worked best. I thought I picked the ones that um, worked with whatever their expertise was in something True. that was unique about them. True. Uh, there's a collector, uh, Chris Simmons, who his whole page uh, is a uh, record awards. Um, mm. It's actually, I mean, he's got a lot of, of different items in his collection, lots of different things. It's not just record awards, but I thought that was where his specialty was. It, it was kind of nice and visual. And sure. so that's what ended up on his page. So, well, and it adds to the diversity of, of the book for me to see that there are people who collect, bootleg cassettes then there's people who cassette uh, you know regular cassettes or then there's the t-shirt people or then the record things or or, or the member the kind of traditional memorabilia it's cool to see the whole spectrum for sure mm -hmm. uh very interesting that it was this book wasn't about money that you would think a collector's guide in a way you would think that like how much okay i've got this how much can i get for it on the market it really either of course there's a there's a chapter about value. There's a chapter about condition, but really, it's not all about. Um, it's not all about money. It certainly is not for us collectors. So, but I, I was pleased to see that in hindsight, going through the book, that we didn't talk about it very much. No, and in fact, um, there have been price guides put out. Um, Record Collector Magazine will give you price guides on various uh, mm -hmm. collectibles. Yeah. Um, they're worthless because. Mm -hmm. um, they change all the time. It depends yeah. on who's looking, where the item is. And to that point, their, their specialty are, are vinyl records. And so maybe if they do have some level of, of usefulness, they're not going to be able to value a poster or a ticket mm -hmm. or a, yeah. a signed whatever. So um, there have been attempts in the past to put values on things. And even on my website, I have included values in the past. Mm -hmm. But give it a year and they're worthless. And That's I regret, right. uh, I put in the book, I regret any of those that I put on there. Um, they're, they're next to meaningless. Mm -hmm. And the other reason is that if you talk about some of the items in there, uh, there's only one. What are you going to put a value on, uh, on a poster or a test pressing where there's only one? Are you going to go in and, and start looking around for that? There isn't. So, um, yes, it can give you an idea. Yes, we know um, some of these things have value, but I think to point at an item and, and put a number next to it, it really defeats uh, the, the purpose of it. 
Well, and it, it really, the proof is in the pudding is that most people in the book, myself included, um, or myself as, as one of these people, is that there's just not a lot of people who are interested in selling their items. Some people want to maybe get rid of it for, you know, um, so that it doesn't bury them. But um, most people are not interested in selling, so I don't care what it's worth. Right. And I think if you're going to buy the item, you really need to divorce yourself from the value of it mm. because you're not going to make uh, a ton of money selling it. You didn't sure. buy it with the intention of selling it. That's right. And if you were to one day um, sell it, auction it, whatever, the value is going to be so different. It's not even worth thinking about. Yeah. You should yeah. just get the items that make you happy, enjoy it while you can and um, if somebody is interested in it, when you lose interest, then then even better. Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay, let's talk about um, let's talk about go back to the footage and and the work you do because we have something coming out tomorrow. And so for the folks who watch this episode on the day it comes out, God bless you. We love you. Thank you. Um, but for the folks who are watching this, Genesis Museum on their YouTube channel is dropping something tomorrow. Can, so can you give us a little preview and tell us what that will be? Right. So um, we're always releasing uh, interesting things that we find, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but um, there's something in the collector's mindset that loves the anniversary. Mm -hmm. And um, we released a 50th anniversary of the Bataclan earlier this year, which seems a little bit odd because we only had released the other one the year before. But... Um, we we did a, a little bit different uh, thing with it, and uh, we redid the audio with a sure. an audio engineer, and um, you know, so the 50th anniversary is coming up of the uh, Shepherdin footage, and the Shepherdin 1973 Shepherdin Studios footage is well known as being one of the only high quality uh, costume shows that was even recorded of, uh, of Genesis. Mm. And um, we do have some other ones. We have the melody, which is only um, on videotape, uh, beta cam. Yeah. There okay. is, um, there's some other ones, but there, there isn't the high quality 16 millimeter that we have for the, the Shepherdin. Right. And um, the Shepherdin is actually an interesting story because when I first became aware of it, this was in the very early 2000s. I'm thinking 2002. And um, wow. I had seen it in an auction. It was a estate sale, New York estate sale. Wow. And um, this was at a time when we there, the community was small enough. There was no Facebook. There was uh, no social media that we as friends would have these news groups and we would talk to one another. We had collectors we would talk to. One of the news groups was Paper Late. And another one that this group was, was called Meeks, um, run by this guy who called himself Meeks. And um, we saw this auction and it was, uh, we knew it was going to go for some high dollar amount. And, uh, you know, I, I'd been a new engineer at the time and I didn't have a ton of money to spend on these things. So we decided to to try a crowdfund. And uh, this was before crowdfunding was a thing. And I basically got uh, pledges from each of these people in this Meeks Genesis group. And they ranged from $20 to $200. Whatever anybody could put in, they did. And we didn't even know where the auction was going to end. We didn't know yeah. what the content was. We thought we knew. We thought it could be useful. We were hoping it wasn't damaged. 
and we just um, uh, did our best. I, I won the auction, and then the crowdfund paid for the the transfer because mm. at the time all we had were DVDs, just regular DVDs. Right. And um, I sent it out for a transfer, and it was thankfully in reasonable condition. But um, as you saw in the the sample, it has gone completely red, and that's a very mm. common uh, fading effect of the the green and blue on these Kodak films. So I spent a lot of time making it watchable, but we didn't have great computers, we didn't have great tools, and of course we only had DVD quality. And so um, we did our best and we still loved it. We passed it out to everybody in the group and um, we loved it. It was the first time you could see this band not sourced from a tape. It yeah. was, you know, the first time when we actually had access to a film and you can see uh, one of the reels here and there's a another one on the wall Boop, right there. Okay. And um, <laughs> so there's two reels uh, for this. And um, that was in 2003 and we released the first version of that. Well, a few years later, Genesis is trying to put out a box set and they're um, looking for this film. They have no idea where it is. They thought at the time it was produced like crap the band hated it. It was done in a very peculiar way with different takes and close-up angles. Rather than just film the show, they did this kind of, they filmed it like you'd film a sitcom or something with different, oh. you know, okay, you know, redo that part where you point, now point the flute at the camera. Now let's oh, get this wow. thing. So it was such a mess that at the time they never thought anything of it and they didn't keep it. So I have this letter, this was in the book as well, but um, I axed out the... Uh, the uh, personal information, but this is a, a letter from um, Charisma Records, uh, Glenn mm. Colson, who is looking for the um, the Shepherd and Studios um, concert. Wow. They want to release wow. it on the box set, and they don't know where it is. So when the box set comes out, guess what? It has the version that we uh, funded on there. That was all that they could get. So wow. the box set uh, on the selling and they email. got it from you. Did they get it from you? Not directly from me, but they, you know, oh. they got it from, you know, the copies are wandering around by this. Okay. Point. okay. Um, so, I mean, it, it was even on the streets of Japan. You could get a, a DVD of this uh, separate wow. Um, wow. thing. And so um, they had not looked into trying to find, or they didn't, they weren't able to find a, a, a better quality copy. So, um, you know, I still had the original here. So in 2000, um, I think it must have been 13, maybe 2012, um, HD was a lot more common. Mm -hmm. So I um, paid for an HD transfer, and then I put that um, up on the internet. And that's the one of my uh, on my channel, which has the most views. I think it's maybe right. 7 million now. And um, that was really the the first modernization of this uh, concert because you could see where the dials are set and you can see the grooves in the symbols. And um, it was really kind of a raw transfer. By that, I mean, there, there wasn't the tools to really uh, clean it up and, um, and give it the, the, the um, treatment it deserves. Mm. So in the ensuing 10 years, now we're uh, 20 years after the auction, we're in 2023, and we're nearing the 50th anniversary of the, uh, the concert. So everybody is giving me the, the quite obvious um, recommendation to do this in 4K. 
because now we have the equipment. We have much faster computers. Uh, nice. An eight terabyte drive is not as expensive as it used to be. And so I sent it out yet again for <laughs> a 4K transfer. And um, I decide to really do the work uh, this time on cleaning this thing up. And um, by cleanup, I mean by hand, uh, frame by frame, cleaning little imperfections, scratches that used to be annoying. I wow. cleaned up all of the titles. I um, corrected the color. Every single scene has different color settings because wow. um, when the film was produced, it was kind of a mess. And the um, we talked to um, Tomat talked to um, the producer um, uh, Jerry Harrison. Is that his name? Yeah. So Jerry Harrison is is the producer of it, and, and Tomat talked to him to try to uh, figure out how was this put together. Mm -hmm. And um, earlier this year, I visited John Burns, who did the sound on it, and he talked about the sound and how it was in a audience of maybe a hundred people. Mm. It was a studio setting and yeah. John asked uh, Tony Smith for the money to put up baffles for the sound because you can't have all this sound in an empty arena. It's sure. going to cause a problem. And of course, Tony Smith uh, said no. And so um, <laughs> the sound is a mess as well. And um, on some of the samples that I gave you, you can see the sound waves down on the right mm -hmm. side of the yep. film. Yep. And it's called optical sound. And it is a, a great way when you're making 16 millimeter movies to uh, have sound synchronized and, and go along with the movie, right. but it does a very poor job for um, music because okay. it has a very limited bandwidth on there. And so um, we had tried over the years to get better sound off of this. We have tried over the years to get the sound from the band, but they're not interested in really working with the fans in that way. Um, we'd love to put out a thing with, uh, you know, some of the material from, from the band, but they're, um, they're very, uh, uh, they keep those things close to the vest. Hmm. So I gave the, um, yeah, it's, it's a shame because I, I mean, we're really, I mean, we all do this for free and we'd love to, uh, to, yeah. to work with yeah. them. Um, but I was able to, with a new scanner, scan the waveform rather than use the old technology of some goofy light bulb that read the thing. And so I gave the audio to um, someone else that I work with named Tom Morgenstern in Germany, who he's a, uh, an audio engineer, and he did uh, a okay. great job with the audio. So as I say many times in the museum, it's a, it's a group effort. Sure. Yeah. I'm sitting there doing these frames of, of video hoping I can really take this to another level and um, not maybe knowing if it's even worth it. Um, sending the film, you know, to places to get different scans done, hoping that it, it could be uh, really great. And uh, I think it really turned out uh, wonderful, to be honest. I, mm. I've seen the film backwards and forwards, and uh, you kind of get sick of it at times. But I even I, I think that it came out looking and sounding really nice. So um, if you look at the uh, before and after, the you know, the, the thing that we had, had started with and where we ended up, it's quite a, amazing Unbelievable. The, um, yeah. All the UV lights come through. Um, mm. All of the colors are there. And um, yeah, so we really are, are proud of it. And so we're releasing it, I guess, as you said, it'll be tomorrow when this is uh, right. broadcast. And it'll be on the, the 50th anniversary of when it was recorded. 
And the YouTube channel, I'll include a link, but it is Genesis Museum, right? It's just youtube.com slash Genesis Museum. Yes. Yeah. The okay. G and the M are capitalized, but it works. Okay. Um, yeah, well, that's so exciting. And that's the complete, that's the complete set. Um, well, this is all that they, uh, played that day. Yes. Um, yeah. they played, um, over two nights and it was a mix of different takes and, and they would play part of one song and they'd stop and they'd play part of it again with a different angle. And then they would mime, they did a lot of miming to the song. So, um, wow. so yes, it's not a set like you would think a sure. regular concert set, but it is an hour of, um, of the concert. It's got the full suppers ready. It starts with watcher. It has uh, dancing with moonlit night. Um, I know what I like and musical box yeah, and, beautiful. um, all with full costumes and slides and films and, uh, effects. Awesome. So it's really the only high quality, um, costume show that we really have. That's great. Uh, yeah, I, well, I can't wait to watch it. So you had mentioned, um, you mentioned this on the, the tabletop Genesis podcast that the coverage that the Bataclan was getting through Rolling Stone and whatnot. And, and now with the book that hopefully your profile is getting to a certain point where other people who aren't in the forums or on Facebook every day, but maybe some other fans or even non-fans might um, reach out to you and say, hey, we have this. Has that been happening? Um, yes, we're always dealing with um, contacts and leads. We're following leads and, and talking to people. Um, there's, I always say there's a uh, hundred leads and 99 of them are bad, That's but, right. um, yeah. you have to follow each one and, um, it makes a big difference if you can give examples of your work. Mm -hmm. And so when we were, um, reviewed in, in Rolling Stone and we've been in, uh, guitar world and, and uh, a lot of other places, um, when somebody has their, uh, their eight millimeter or 16 millimeter footage, and they're trying to have somebody save it and work on it and, and do these sorts of things. We need to have a profile that shows that we know what we're doing, That's that right. we're not going to take the footage and run off with it or resell it or something <laughs> like that. And that um, the product is going to be nice and that we're going to do right by the, um, the owner of it, that right. if they want it done in a certain way, if they want it put in a certain place and not in another place, um, we have to be sure that they're um, happy with it so that the next time uh, an opportunity shows itself, if somebody who I talk to says, hey, here's this guy I know, um, we have the, um, you know, some good feet to stand on so that we can work on the next project. That's a great way of doing things. Tell me about, before I let you go, tell me about your collection. What lights you up these days? I mean, you're so busy with everything. Um, but you know, you must still get that sometimes at a thrift store or a record store. Yeah. I mean, I'm always, uh, collecting, um, my collecting goes through different phases because I think, um, you know, you can be a fan of, let's say magazines and, and mm. I certainly have plenty of them, but there does come a point when you say, okay, I can't even uh, find my way through my magazine collection at this point. I can't read all of them. Yeah. Um, I certainly don't need to buy any more. Maybe they're not expensive, but maybe that's not the the biggest issue. So then I will move on to something else and and maybe I'll, I'll start to collect vinyl or maybe I start to look for uh, t-shirts or, or who knows sure. what, but yeah, there's, I'm always looking for things. There's always uh, auctions for things. 
Um, there's plenty of items that I don't uh, buy because either they're you know more than I'm looking to spend, or maybe they're not quite the item that that uh, um, does it for me. But yeah, there's I'm always looking uh, for them. I'm always talking to other collectors. I recently bought a a large collection of slides from an, an old collector, um, cool. a few hundred of those, and. Um, it's just great to, you know, in those cases, I put them in the slide scanner and I can see um, different parts of shows that, I, that may I, maybe I haven't seen before. And um, there's always something in the collector's world to, uh, you know, to light you up and to say, hey, this is something that that I'd love to have and, and maybe I can uh, add it to the museum. Um, I was curious, uh, just if, from your experience, you're in America, I, I, right? Right. I'm in Canada. I'm wondering, are we at a disadvantage when it comes to specifically records, but any sort of collectibles? Are we at a disadvantage than, than people uh, in, let's say, Germany or the UK or Italy looking for stuff? Well, certainly for Genesis, we are. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. Genesis was very popular in the U.S. for sure. But trying to find those great items, I mean, they're going to be in the U.K., uh, France and Italy first, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Germany, uh, for sure. And the U S to some degree, but there's an awful lot of, okay, I would like to buy this, but it's got to come from uh, Europe in mm -hmm. order to, uh, to make it down here. But, um, a disadvantage, I don't know. Um, certainly when it comes to shipping and, uh, it was nice years ago, you could ship things. Uh, I mean, you could have shipped that book for, uh, ten fifteen dollars years ago, but those days are gone. Totally. So now <laughs> you would ship a poster, and it, you know it's it's easily going to be twenty, thirty, forty dollars just just for shipping. Well, I want to I want to ask you if you have a sec. I want to ask you some some Phil Collins related questions for our patrons as a bonus. But before I do, I want to say thank you so much for doing this interview. Thank you for sharing with what's going to be dropping tomorrow and everyone's going to be um, checking that out just because you've set the bar so high. So we're all very excited. And then again, a, a, thank you for the book. And I think um, uh, we're, we're going to get to a point where every Genesis fan will buy one. I know that's <laughs> a lot more work for you, um, but congrats on the book. It, it was well worth it. Well, thank you. Um, just as a side point, um, it is about 70% sold out. So um, mm. it is a limited edition. Um, I know that a lot of fans would love to have it. I also know it can be expensive and some people maybe aren't book people, but um, I'm hoping that everyone who wants one can get one. Sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm just one guy. Um, I sent you some of the, you know, photos of the museum here, but it's, you know, the books aren't sitting in a warehouse. They're just here yeah. Uh, yeah. sitting with packing materials ready to be sent to the next, uh, next yeah. buyer. Well, I, I'm sure it won't take long, especially with Christmas coming. Mm -hmm. This is a, it's a great Christmas present. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and hit the like button for exclusive videos, behind the scenes content, and to have your say on future topics before I film, have a look at our Patreon page. Thanks for watching.